as you're finding your way back to Isaiah 61, which is where we be looking at this evening. Just let me bring a couple of other things for you to keep in prayer this week. Uh, Dave goes off to Goa for six weeks uh, on Tuesday morning. Please keep David and Alison in your prayers that David will be kept well and um, be used of God out there and that uh, Ali will be looked after while her husband's away. We also got an elders half day on Saturday the 22nd. Uh, much prayer for us please as we meet together to consider how the Lord would have us lead the church forward in, in his wisdom. So we, we need God's wisdom and we need your prayers for that wisdom please for that day. Isaiah 61, let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that as we leave this meeting this evening, as we draw this Lord's Day to a, a close, we might say with those on the road to Emmaus that their experience, might, their experience might be ours, that we would say, did not our hearts burn within us as he, the Lord Jesus, spoke to us from his word. May that be our experience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two men are sent to prison to serve a lengthy prison sentence. Both guilty of a particular crime, and they're both sentenced to lengthy term in prison. One man has no one to encourage him, no family on the outside to visit him. There is nothing, there is no, nothing for him to find any hope in either in the prison or even outside. And therefore he falls into despair and ends up taking his own life. The other man has the love and support of his wife and his family who help him to stay focused on his release date and the new start that's awaiting him. He finds it incredibly tough, but he keeps going and he makes it home. Why do I mention that story? I mention it because for the simple reason is that we are all hope-shaped people. We are all shaped by what we hope for, what we long for, what we dream of, what we plan for, what we yearn for. The future that we long for, hope for, yearn for, plan for shapes our present reality. When we all need hope, and we all need reasons to hope in, we all need something better to hope for, and we all need support whilst we're waiting for that which we hope for to be realized, do we not? One day, a young preacher came back to the town that he was raised in, and the church he grew up in. And this is what he said. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where, where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Lord is moving all history towards the ultimate triumph of the gospel. If you were asked, what is the ultimate triumph of the gospel? I wonder what passage you would go to to summarize what is the ultimate goal of the gospel, the ultimate triumph of the gospel, to which all history is moving. I think the best place to go would be Romans chapter 8, 19 through 21, which tells us that the ultimate triumph of the gospel is the glorious liberty of the children of God in the new heavens and the new earth, that this creation is presently groaning for, longing for, the liberty of the children of God. And to achieve that eternal triumph of the gospel, this text in Isaiah 61 that Jesus preached on summarizes the two things that the Lord's anointed Messiah is committed to do. In verse 2 of our readings in Isaiah 61, there are the two things that he is going to do to bring about the ultimate triumph of the gospel. He is going to do proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. If you were following as I was reading from the Luke 4, Jesus stops the reading to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's when he stops. He doesn't go on to the second half of verse 2. And we'll be looking at the first of those things tonight, the year of the Lord's favor. And then next Sunday evening, God willing, Tim's going to be looking at the day of the vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor is promised in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, the darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. And that promise of Isaiah 60 is against the dark reality of us all falling short of the glory of God, which we've been spending a couple of weeks looking at from 56.9 right the way through to 59 verse 8. Because we all fall short of the glory of God in that we none of us fully delight in his Sabbath. And we've, ex and we've looked at the types of rebellion that the Lord is dealing with in his own people. There are what I would call younger brother rebellion. They're the mockers that we met. Or the older brother type rebellion, which is sham fasting. Very interesting when Jesus talks about the man who had two sons. One of them is the younger brother, who's a rebellious type. I want to live by my way. And the elder brother is the stop-at-home good boy, but he's equally rebellious, as we find in the parable. 
But is it not true that even on our best days, our devotion to the Lord is tainted? Is it not? And so this great hope in Isaiah 60 flows out of the gift of true contrition, true confession and true repentance that concludes the fifth, chapter 59, 9 through 15. And it leads the Lord himself stepping into our story. And so we hear in Isaiah 61 firsthand from the Lord who stepped into human history personally. And in these first of these great achievements towards the ultimate triumph of the gospel, we hear him speak about the year of the Lord's favor. And no preacher has ever had an introduction to a sermon like this, has he? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we see three things I want to bring out from the text that I believe Jesus preached on that day. We see Jesus speak about his purpose, why he has come. It is for the display of God's splendor. I get that from the end of verse 3. We see him talk about his people, what he wants to achieve in his people which is our everlasting joy. I get that from the end of verse 7. And why he does. What is it he's motivated for to achieve his people, the glory of God and the joy of his people? What is his pleasure? Verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. So we're going to think about Jesus' purpose, Jesus' people, And Jesus' pleasure. Jesus' purpose for the display of his splendor. Everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is to bring glory to his Father. That's a key theme that we see running throughout uh, the New Testament. Particularly John's Gospel highlights this. And this is how Jesus prayed, this great high priestly prayer, chapter 7, John 17, verse 4. When he's talking to his father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And the most God-glorifying thing that Jesus does is to transform broken-hearted, sin-enslaved prisoners into what he describes here as oaks of righteousness. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And Jesus' mission is to achieve that in this period of human history in which he calls the year of the Lord's favor. So how is he doing it? Because we are living through The year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is not the day of vengeance of our God. Praise God. There is still time. How is he doing it? The text tells us there are two things that he is doing. And it's all related to the gospel. He is 
firstly preaching, he is proclaiming the gospel of God to everyone in the power of the Spirit because, he says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. He's anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He's anointed to proclaim freedom from the, for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Verse 2, he's anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice the union. There is an indivisible, sovereign grace forged union here. Because the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, there's the Holy Spirit, of the Sovereign Lord, of His Father, who anoints the Son. The Trinity are in verse 1. Father, Son, and Spirit are working together in perfect triune harmony to preach the gospel. It is the proclamation of the good news. Because we learn in the New Testament, do we not, that faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of Christ. Because the gospel is the power, is the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So the first thing that Jesus is doing in this year of the Lord's favor is proclaiming in the power of the Spirit to everyone the gospel. And secondly, He is pastoring those who believe the gospel. Because the second thing we learn, he has sent me to. He has anointed me to proclaim, verse 1. And at the end of verse 1, he has sent me to. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me, verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Verse 3, and he has sent me to provide for those who grieve. In Zion, and he has sent me to bestow on them a crown of beauty. And he is committed to the, his preaching ministry and his pastoral ministry in order to achieve all this in the year of the Lord's favor for the display of his splendor. You get that in uh, verse 21 of. Chapter 60, then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are shoots, they are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. There's God the Father speaking. And here's Jesus speaking in verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Because everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is for the display of his Father's Splendor, but notice that there is another unbreakable link here, also forged by sovereign grace. And I want you to get this. If you get nothing else, get this. This is transforming stuff. It is that the glory of God is unbreakably bound up with the joy of his people. They are not two separate things. The joy of God's people that Jesus wants us to experience 
and the glory of God that Jesus wants to bring glory to his Father are not two separate things. Your happiness in Christ is inextricably and unbreakably linked to the glory of God. Because God is most glorified in his people when we experience his everlasting joy in our transformed lives that dawns on us in the year of the Lord's favor. So the second point in Jesus' sermon, this young preacher from Nazareth, he's telling us about his purpose to, to bring honor and glory to his father. And now he's going to talk to us about his people to bestow on them. Who is it that are those who hear the gospel and are saved? He tells us in verse 1, the poor. He has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. And those are those, they are those whom Jesus explains in Matthew 5, 3, as the poor in spirit. They are those who know they have nothing to offer God, except their abject poverty. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin that nailed him to the cross. And to be able to say that is a work of the Spirit who wakes us up to say that blessed reality, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And there's also the, the captives and the prisoners, verse 1. Those who, as Jesus explains, know that they are slaves to sin, John 8, 34. Those whose lifestyle choices have made them captive and made them prisoners. There's a haunting line, is there not, in the Christmas carol, where Jacob Marley, the ghost of Jacob Marley, turns up and says to his friend still on earth, I wear the chains I forged in life. But... In the year of the Lord's favor, John 8, 36, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What would your cry throughout eternity want to be? I wear the chains I forged in life, or my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth. And followed thee. Notice as Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and he pastors and shepherds those he is saving, notice the transformation that he achieves in our lives, which begins here and finds its ultimate consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who are broken hearted are bound up. Verse 1. Those who mourn are comforted, verse 2. Those who grieve are provided for, verse 3. And notice the great exchanges he makes in our lives because he bestows upon his people a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy 
instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Verse 7, instead of your shame, we were hearing about shame this morning, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours because God is most glorified in his people when we experience his everlasting joy in our transformed lives that dawns on us in the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus, this young preacher from Nazareth, tells us that he is totally, 100% committed to fully and forever satisfying the deepest needs and the deepest longings of all of his people. But why is, so, is Jesus so powerfully motivated in achieving the display of the Lord's splendor in the transformed everlasting joy of his people. I should have flicked the slide over. Because of Jesus' pleasure. Verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read these words regarding the Lord Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Many have said, and I think it's true, that it was the joy that awaited him in glory. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It, make, it is crystal clear that Jesus did not enjoy the cross, he endured it. But... Point three in Jesus' sermon on that, in that synagogue on, in Nazareth. I believe he is telling us that he delighted greatly in what his death upon the cross was achieving. Because his death on the cross must be the crowning glory of the year of the Lord's favour. And he's telling us in Isaiah 61 verse 10 that he delights, he finds his pleasure in greatly delighting in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God. That's what he says. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? <coughs> Why? He tells us why. Look at what the text says. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation 
and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. He's using marriage pictures here to express his delight in the Lord. He's using the imagery of marriage, which is a huge theme in the prophecy of Isaiah. Your maker is your husband, the kinsman redeemer. It's a massive theme. What does that mean? Could it mean, I'd like to think about this and meditate on this this evening, could it mean when he's thinking about as a bridegroom's adorns his head like a priest, there was a headrest, there was a, there was a, a special, there was a special headdress that the priest wore, the high priest wore. What was Jesus doing when he went to the cross? He's ultimately the priest who is the victim. He is sacrificing himself on the cross, is he not? Which means, could it mean, that the crown of thorns that is impaled into his skull... And the the crown of thorns is a sign of the curse, as we heard this morning, Genesis 3.18. Could it mean that he is reading that, that the crown of thorns impaled on his head is literally the bridegroom's priestly headdress? Could it mean... That the bedraggled and blood-soaked seamless robe that he wore as he dragged himself along the Via Della Rosa to, to Calvary is literally his, he's picturing it as his wedding garment, his robe of righteousness. Could it be that he is anticipating as he's on the cross his wedding day and he's literally overwhelmed with joy because he was winning you and me, his bride, with his blood. We were thinking, not this Sunday morning, but last Sunday morning, how the Lord made a wife... For Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, 21 through 24, we see how the Lord goes about it because it is not good for man to be alone. There was one, Adam. So the Lord laid Adam into a deep sleep and took a rib from his side. Then there was two. Then he brought them together. And there was one. How did God make a bride for his son? He didn't put him into a deep sleep, did he? He crushed him on the cross. He crushed him to death on the cross. 
and yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, in which Jesus said he found his greatest delight. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. I think Jesus is telling us here in the third point of his sermon that he is going to celebrate his wedding joy of winning his bride on Calvary, which is the crowning glory of the year of the Lord's favour. And on that theme, we will be singing of the victory of the slaughtered lamb for all eternity. Revelation 5, 12. The lamb that was slain, the, the victory of the slaughtered lamb will be the theme of our praise throughout all eternity. Therefore, may Jesus purpose the glory of God thrill our souls. May Jesus' commitment to his people's joy is our everlasting joy transform our lives. And may his pleasure in going to the cross for us melt our hearts with everlasting joy. Are you listening to the young preacher from Nazareth proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favour? Let us pray. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. We praise you and bless you, Spirit-anointed Son, that we have heard you proclaim to us the good news. And we are experiencing the foretaste of everlasting joy. Comfort, Lord, all in this church who mourn. Bind up, sovereign Lord, all in this church who are brokenhearted. And may we see those we love who are still in captive to sin and darkness be released and stand with us on that great day. And this we pray for your glory and our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Over a thousand tongues to